Paul to write by the Spirit to this church in Thessalonica. And this portion of Scripture which you so ordained your church to have throughout the centuries until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. So we pray this morning that as we study this passage that you would, by your Spirit, apply it to each one of the hearers, by your grace and by your power. Through this, may you be glorified and may you be our teacher and our guide. In this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, what a great subject matter we have before us this morning. It's one that the, the church itself has been expectantly waiting for. And it's my prayer this morning as we examine our text that the Spirit of God has sunk deep down into your heart this glorious expectancy. It is a stunning thing when you look at the golden pages the, of the Old Testament. It was, it's stunning to me the number of times that the sheep of God, I'm talking about the sheep of God in the Old Testament, had this great expectancy of the Lord Jesus Christ to come the first time. One of the overarching themes, one of the overarching things that you see within the Old Testament is indeed the Lord's decree, His promise, His infallible guarantee that in history, at the, at the perfect time, He was indeed going to send forth His only begotten Son, His Beloved Son. And again, we see this over and over again throughout this scriptures, this anticipatory expectancy concerning the Lord's first coming. Now, we can look at many verses in the Old Testament, but we have been blessed, brethren, because we have the New Testament, which is indeed an inspired commentary on the Old. And you say, well, how do you know, Pastor Mike? How do you know for sure they were looking, that they were expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to come? Well, let me share these hallowed words with you that the Apostle Peter wrote as he's led by the Spirit of God. Listen carefully. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired. And again, brethren, they are looking. They are they're looking to see. They did not understand it completely, just like you and I, our text this morning. If you think I understand completely how the Lord, when He comes back, how that's all going to unfold, I can tell you this morning, you're going to be sorely disappointed. All we have is what the Bible says concerning that matter. And I can give you a sketch of the order of things, and that's what Paul really is addressing here. But listen again as Peter continues in his text. He says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, and again, brethren, we see this. Who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you? Searching what or what manner? Think of this, brethren, again. The Old Testament prophets are writing about this glorious thing that God is going to do. He's going to, as he, did in, as he said in Genesis 22, I will choose the Lamb. I will send the Lamb. He will be the perfect sacrifice, and He will indeed save His people from their sins. And again, we see this over and over again. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. Again, they're writing, think of Isaiah. 
And when he wrote Isaiah chapter 52, and he wrote this text, his visage was marred above every other man. And he's writing these things, and the Spirit of God's leading him to do that. He's writing about what? The crucifixion of Christ. Not fully understanding it, but again, looking. There's going to be a specific begotten man, one who is unique and one of a kind, who's going to be brought into the, into the world. He's the one. And so they are looking all along the way for him. There was indeed an excited, anticipatory looking forward to our Lord's first entry into the world with a constant eye towards his first coming. Yes, brother, and that is true. Hence, the glorious Gospels. Isn't it neat how the Lord, just amazing how the Lord threads it all together? We have the Old Testament. There's an expectancy of someone is coming, someone unique, someone who, think of this for a moment, someone who's going to be born in a certain place. Somebody who's, I mean, you can't imagine, brother, the depth of this thing. I mean, you, you just think of what that was when they were writing these things out. The very place he's going to be born, the very place he's going to flee to, the very time which he's going to be here. Again, this is the Lord working this out. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, right? At just the right time, the time of completion, the Lord Jesus came. And again, they're looking for these things. It's an amazing thing. The glorious Gospels that, again, the Lord has been so gracious to put in our Bibles. God records in great detail there the miraculous arrival of his son, who the sheep of God, again, I'm saying the sheep of God because we know what happened when he came. There were some people who were not the sheep of God, who what? Who took him to the cross and, again, did exactly what the Lord's predetermined counsel said would be done but they were not looking for him but there were those again who were looking for him at his first coming I want to just show you this for just a moment and, and again this should excite us because the whole text has to do with what his second coming and brethren we as believers should be excited about the expectancy of him coming just like they were in the first in the old testament where is he He's going to forgive us of our sins. He's going to save us from our sins. And again, we see them doing that. Look at Luke chapter 2, just a couple of them here this morning. I just want to remind us how important both his first and how his second his first coming then ties into his second coming, the glorious truthfulness of God. Look at Luke chapter 2. Look at here if you would. Just going to read a couple of them here together. Again, they're looking for their expectancy, their excitement for him to come. Luke chapter 2, look at verse number 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting. You see that there again? There's, a, there's an expectancy. There's a waiting for Christ to come. We're looking, we're looking in the scriptures, we see in the Old Testament this thing's being written, and here they are now in the temple, and listen to what it says, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and he came by the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law, then took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord... Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen what? Thy salvation. The one he's been waiting for. The one Simeon as a Jewish godly man looking in the Old Testament. He's been waiting for Christ to come with great expectancy. Listen, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people 
Israel. Again, there was this great expectancy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, look at what the last Old Testament prophet said. Look over at Luke chapter 7. This is the last Old Testament prophet. What is he doing? John the Baptist, right? He's the last Old Testament prophet. And look what he says. Look here, verse Luke 19, or Luke 7. Look at verse number 19. Let me back up here a little bit. Verse number 19. Look what the Bible says. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? There's the old last testament prophet. There he is again. He's expectantly looking for Christ. He's looking for this. And brothers, I was talking to Wendy about this yesterday. And she said, Mike, what's interesting is that a lot of the, the Jews who are practicing fundamental Jews, you know what they're still doing? They're still looking. They're still expectantly waiting for their Savior to come. Every year, the chair, the empty chair at the end of their table waits for Elijah to come. They are still looking. They're still waiting. The Lord has to open their eyes to see that Christ was in. And man, again, God's glorious purposes for the time of the Gentiles is what? He hardened the heart of Israel so that you and I, if you're a Gentile this morning, according to Romans 11, you are grafted in while they are experiencing a hardness, a time of hardness. But they're still looking. They're still expectantly looking for him, just as they did here at this time. This great expectancy, if you will. Are you the one, or should we look for another? They're looking. In fact, in John chapter 1, we don't have time to go there, but if you turn to John chapter 1, verses 4, well, let's just go there. Look at John chapter 1. We'll just read that quick. We had the last Old Testament prophet looking for him. We had him look him all down through the ages of time, expecting him to come because they knew that God's word is true, that what he said is true. Yes, that he would bring it to pass. Brethren, just like today, let me just liken it for us for a moment. Do you believe this morning that Jesus is coming again? I pray you do. You better because he promised he would. Just like this, and he followed through. And brethren, what a glorious thing that's going to be to see our Lord come to gather his church, those from the past dispensations, then the future, even as we wait patiently. Look at the happiness of these men when they finally find the Messiah. Look at John chapter 1, look at verse number 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah. We found the one we're looking for. Come and see him. Went right to his family, right to those who are looking for him. Constantly. Look what he said. We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. What does Philip do? Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him. We found him. The one that Moses wrote about. The one that the Old Testament's speaking about. We found him. We've been looking. And God, in his gloriousness and his graciousness, has sent him into the world. God putting on flesh, coming down, being born. Think of this, brother, being born of a Virgin Mary. Again, here's where he's going to be. This is how it's going to come. And they were looking. There are certain things, brethren, in the scripture, I promise you, especially now as we're living in a world today 
of demons and spirits and deception beyond measure, brother. There are going to be some things just like this that he cannot duplicate. The true believer is going to look at Scripture and go, yes, that is a sign. He is coming. We can see it. We don't know exactly when, but we see it coming. He is indeed on his way. We don't know exactly when, but we do know that he will be. And even as he closes, and we don't have time to go there, but Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. He closes all of canon, all of the canon, with these words. Behold, I come, what, quickly. He promised. He promised them that he would indeed come. And so, when Jesus was here, and this is what's important. Again, the Old Testament prophets, seeing him coming, looking, looking, looking. He's here. His, his brethren are looking at scriptures and going, yeah, that's him. But this is really, brethren, the part that really brings us in. The thing that really encapsulates us. That when he was here, he made his own decree. He made his own promise. And the promise is to those the night before he goes to the cross and dies in the stead of his sheep. I want you to hear what he tells them. And again, brother, look at John chapter 14. Again, this is how this works. The Old Testament prophets, he, uh, he's coming. The new, uh, we're here, we're looking at scripture, he's here. And then when he's here, he makes this glorious promise. After telling them, look at John chapter 14. Listen, if you read John chapter 13, you will certainly understand why John chapter 14 opens up the way it does. The Lord Jesus is there with his disciples and he's telling them all sorts of bad news. Hey, number one, Judas is going to betray me. He's going to turn me over. Not only that, hey, Peter, by the way, you're going to deny me. Judas is going to betray me. Peter's going to deny me. And by the way, just so you know, I'm leaving. I'm absolutely leaving. But I want to leave you with this. As you know, I'm leaving. Look at verse number one. After telling him all of that, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Why wouldn't it be troubled? It would have been troubled because of what he just said in chapter 13, these things. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe, what does it say? Believe ye in God. Believe also in me. Now look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again for you. Yes. He makes a promise while he's here walking on this celestial ball. As he, he's sitting here, he looks at his disciples and says, by the way, this is going to happen, and by the way, I'm coming again. I will indeed be back to get you. And brethren, this, <laughs> I always tell people get our great hope confused. You know, our great hope is Christ in us. It's not his return. The great, we would call his return, what? The great end. The great end, that's what that is. Our great hope is Christ in us. It is the great end which God is bringing to pass in our text, which we're going to see here shortly together. Now, these church, or this church at Thessalonica, as we have been going along, we have seen what a great example they are in so many things. And again, we know that this, this particular subject matter is in every chapter. The Lord's second coming is here, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. All the way through the second Thessalonians chapter 3. We know that. This is not the first time Paul has hit upon it. But this is the first time that the brothers, that the believers, as we're going to see, had a little muddled understanding 
of the second coming. And Paul here, of course, is going to help us to straighten that out. In fact, they were looking. They believed it. They understood it, that Jesus was coming back. But when we look at our text this morning, that they believed, literally, not only in the imminent return, that Christ could come at any time, which they did, they actually believed that he would come before any of them died. Think of this, brethren, for a moment. We've been waiting now 1,989 years, almost 2,000 years. They literally believed that he would come before any of them died. And this is what Paul has to address. What's happening to my brothers? What's happening to my sisters? What's happening to my children who are saved now that the Lord hasn't come? What's going to happen? And this is why the Lord has Paul, under the inspiration of God, right in this text for us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We'll see a very clear sketch, a very clear picture of the order of things. And this is what they're concerned about. This is what they're worried about. The loved ones who have passed before the Lord returned as they were expecting him to come before they died. Now look there at verse number 13. First Thessalonians, <laughs> you know, so much wisdom here, so much good instruction here, so much good as, they, as, as we've seen Paul's pastoral care for the church. And he uses a word here in verse number 13 that many safe spacers are very scared of. Well, they're actually in the middle of it. Look at verse number 13. But I would not have you to be what? Ignorant, brethren. <laughs> what an interesting way for Paul to begin this text. But we do notice, this is now the third time in chapter 4 where Paul addresses those who are there as brethren. He's marking them out. When he's saying these things, brethren, he's marking them out as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not some bunch of wild-eyed people who have these wild ideas. He's saying, you are brethren. He knows that they are brethren. He knows that they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that. And his concern for them, which is always, we as elders, our concern for you and for ourselves, is the muddled understanding concerning the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. He's concerned about what they were thinking and believing about it. They believed that the elect of God had to be physically alive until the Lord came or they would miss out on the catching up and the resurrection. This is what they were thinking. And Paul says to them, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning these very indispensable truths. Now that word ignorant... <laughs> We're going to define it this morning because I found myself right in there. Brethren, there are some things we definitely are ignorant on. But as we're going to see here, there are some things you should not be ignorant on. Because God has laid it out plainly in Scripture. We look at Scripture and go, yep, that's what God said, so I'm not going to be ignorant in that. And one of them is the second coming and the order of the second coming of Christ. He does not want us to be ignorant of that. Now, that word ignorant means want. It means the absence or destitution of knowledge, the negative state of mind that has not been informed by the truth and facts. So in other words, they're having a discussion about what they think the second coming is going to be and what the order of the second coming is going to be. And Paul says, no, don't be 
ignorant. It's interesting when you look in Scripture, and we're going to look at a couple of them. There are some very fundamental doctrines that Paul speaks about. This word ignorant was a word that he liked a lot. In fact, it was a concern he had for many of those who were in the churches in that day. Don't be ignorant concerning these doctrines and many others, brother. But I want you to see. I want you to see what he was concerned about in Scripture concerning the brethren, that they should not be ignorant, that they should not have an absence or destitution of knowledge concerning these important doctrines. Look at Romans chapter 11. Just a couple of them here this morning. There are many of them. Paul says that the brethren, the Christians, Romans, right? He wrote the the book of Romans to the church at Rome. There are Christians there. And there are some things he says, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. And one of them was, of course, God's dealing with Israel. And why we are in the age of time that we are in. And what is God's purpose for the church age? What is God's reasoning for this? Why would God do what he's done to Israel, hardening their hearts? Well, you and I, brethren, are feeling the grace of God in this time. Look at Romans chapter 11. Look there, if you would, at verse number 25. For I would not, brethren, (laughs) he's speaking to Christians, I would not, brethren, that ye should be what? Ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. (laughs) That blindness is in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Don't be ignorant. Don't be misled on the facts. Don't misunderstand what God is doing. Look what he says there. And so all Israel, and of course you always have to, as you see these words, right? All Israel, that's every believing Israelite. Everyone who trusts in Christ. Everyone who comes to Christ. Every one of them. Not the whole nation, but those who believe. All Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, who shall turn away in godliness from Jacob. Now again, brethren, as we understand Who is Paul? What is Paul talking about? He's talking about his second advent. This is speaking of Zion, Jerusalem. Where did he come at his first come? Where where was he born, brother? And if I could ask, if it was Wednesday night, where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. This is distinctly speaking of his second coming when he comes again. This is where he's going to be. Zion, Jerusalem. This is what he's going to be. And we're not to be ignorant of this. Just like we're going through, you know, Revelation on Sunday, or Sunday night, Wednesday evening. You know, that whole book, the very beginning, the Revelation, it doesn't mean something secret and hid. People run around and run away from the book of Revelation like we can't know it. Actually, we can. If we just interpret it properly, if we just stay within our hermeneutics, the proper biblical hermeneutics, there's not a bunch of guessing about what's going on there. And he says, the word revelation means to reveal. It means to bring forth. And so this is the same idea. Don't be ignorant concerning Israel. Look at what else Paul tells us not. Isn't this beautiful? So often I think of Brother Keith all the time because it's such a truth. The Lord tells us not to do something. And then he fills it in with what? What we should do. Don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant about the second coming. Don't be ignorant about the brethren. We're going to look at here in a moment those who have died before Jesus came. Don't be ignorant concerning Israel. 
Look at here, brethren. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is a really good one, a very practical one for the church. Brethren, if you want to learn how not to backslide, you want to learn how not to backslide, to avoid those things that can cause one to backslide, this is exactly what Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. A, well, a way to avoid backsliding. Look there, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look what the Bible says. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. <laughs> there it is again. Don't be uh, one of those people that doesn't understand this or know this. You know why? Because we're going to read what Paul's saying. Don't be ignorant about it. <laughs> so, uh, as we often say, as available as Scripture is, brethren, think of it. I could probably ask you this morning, how many Bibles do you have at home anyway? I have a whole bunch. Well, I have the Book of Mormon there too and a couple of other ones, but I have written inside there, you know, for study only. But we all have easy access, much access to the Word of God. And let me tell you something, brother, and when we get to the end of this here, there is more ignorance concerning these things than there's ever been. How can this be? How can this be? Well, look what Paul says here. You want to not backslide. You want to avoid the pitfalls of that. That ye should be ignorant how that all, of our, that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all did eat the same spiritual meat. And all did drink the same spiritual drink. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was who? Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things were our what? Examples. These were laid out. This is what you don't want to do if you don't want to backslide. And you just go on down there. Verse 7. Look how it starts. Neither. Verse 8. Neither. Verse 9. Neither. Verse 10. Neither. Don't do these things and don't be ignorant of them. Look at the example. <laughs> Look around. Sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a very wise thing, brethren, to look at something that may be unfortunate has happened to somebody, and you look at that and you go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in that. Here's the ramifications of that. And that's really what Paul did here. Don't be ignorant. They were all under the same cloud of Moses. They were all under Christ. They were all under these things. And yet, Paul then goes on a list, don't do this, don't do this. And if you don't do that, you won't be like they were. It is amazing. Look at one more thing, and then we'll move on. One more thing Paul warns us to be not ignorant about. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look there, just over one. Look at verse number 10. Look at verse... 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse number 10. The Bible says, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For I forgive anything to whom I forgave it. For your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not what? Ignorant of his devices. Now, brethren, the only way to be not ignorant of Satan's devices is to be keenly aware of what God's word says. Amen. Brethren, you can't shut your Bibles and go on your own emotions and your own thoughts and think you're going to be okay because you're not going to be okay. I wouldn't either. No. 
It's the power of God's word that keeps us and makes us not ignorant, but aware of his schemes. Dean and I were talking yesterday on the phone. Old Mike gets trapped once in a while in his schemes. You know, every once in a while he's got one scheme he really likes to, to pull out on me. And that's discouragement. You ever been discouraged? Oh, man. As a pastor, man, this church is, whew, it's gone like this. And it's like one minute you're just so thankful to the Lord, and the next minute you're sucking your thumb in the corner going, what's going on, Lord? And in reality, like I told Brother Dean, he again, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe he adds to his church as he sees fit. Amen? And you better learn it, Mike. It isn't you. It's not the elders. It's what God is doing. And that's something I've really been and had to work on in my own life. Yes, that is what in Satan's devices he uses against me, is, di is discouragement, is people leave and people come and people stay because of me. No, they don't. And I pray you don't, and I pray no one does. It is the Lord working. It's just that sometimes the pastor has to figure that out. And sometimes it takes a while, amen, to figure that out. And again, to say I believe in the sovereignty of God, say that I trust him in all things, well, when the tire gets on the road, that's when you really realize whether you do or don't. And so this is, where, again, where we're at. We are not to be ignorant of his devices, of his schemes by any stretch. So you see this, brother, very practical, <laughs> very practical. And again, this is what Paul is saying. So again, we take note, though, brethren, don't we, that most people, most people, brethren, are absolutely as ignorant concerning these things as can be. Why? Because they have indeed shut their Bibles. They have indeed trying, and they are indeed trying to figure this out of their own fruition, of their own understanding, and you are in deep trouble when that happens. Paul says here, don't be ignorant. It really is an amazing thing. Now, not only in our text are we not to be ignorant concerning our elected loved ones who have fallen asleep in Christ. And no, brethren, this isn't soul sleeping. <laughs> I wish I had just an hour to address this unholy doctrine of soul sleeping. It's a stunning thing when you delve into it. Falling asleep was indeed, brethren, a common idiom used by Paul and all the Christians of that era. He's not saying that they've, they've went into the grave now and your loved ones are in the grave and they're just soul sleeping, they're waiting for this to happen. No, actually, we know what the Bible says. What did Paul say? Again, don't be ignorant concerning this. What did Paul say? It is what? It, I like to be here, right? But I'd rather be with the Lord, amen? And I mean, as soon as your spirit leaves this body, it leaves and you're either ushered into the presence of God himself or, as unfortunately, more than likely, two young men did here in Bismarck just a couple days ago. I mean, we had the shootout at the OK Corral. Crazy. Did you guys hear about that? Yeah. They come out of the bar all tanked up, and they, had, they, they, they literally had a shootout. They killed each other. One guy shot another one. The other guy says, oh, yeah, here, I'll shoot you. And he shot him, and they both ended up dead in the street. It's amazing, brethren. Let us not be ignorant concerning these things. We must not be. And it is indeed the scripture that helps us. Now, in fact, if you look there at verse number 14, 1 Thessalonians, look at chapter 4, look at verse number 14. Paul uses it. 
Again, not soul sleeping, not by any stretch of the imagination. It's an idiom that they used to describe one who is, well, we've all seen someone in a casket. <laughs> they look like they're what? Sleeping. They're laying there sleeping. That's what it looks like. This is what Paul, the, the language they use. In fact, look at verse number 14. Paul says this, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So again, this is the terminology that he uses. They've died. Your loved ones have died. But if they're in Christ. Now, quickly, I mean, this, this, this is so deep, brother. <laughs> There's so many things. But I want us to see this example. Our Savior, God himself, used these examples. He, in the same text, speaks of sleeping... And then he says, no, you don't understand. Actually, Lazarus, what? Died. So I want you to see this. Turn with me to John chapter 11. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture. This sleeping idiom that the Jews used. John chapter 11. Look there, if you would, for just a moment. This is just for definitional purposes. Look at John chapter 11. Look at verse number 11. John chapter 11, verse number 11. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleep, how shall do well? He shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his what? His death. But they, brought, uh, but they thought that he had been spoken, speaking of taking a rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is what? He's dead. Here's our Lord using that idiom. Well, Lazarus is sleeping. <laughs> no, actually, because you are ignorant, <laughs> because you're unaware of what I'm actually saying. No, actually, Lazarus is dead. He's not sleeping. He's dead. This is exactly, precisely the language that's used here that Paul is talking about. Now, let us just continue on there. Look at verse number 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had, hast been here, my brother had not, what? Died. There it is again. He's, they know. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 9. Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take ye away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. For he hath been soul sleeping for four days. No, he's been dead for four days. Anybody know why four days are in there? <laughs> you know, it's amazing, brethren. We read over things. We don't even understand what Jesus is saying to them. The reason he says he's been dead four days, and Jesus purposely waited how many days? Not one, not two, not three, but four days. You know why? Because they had a weird, weird, ignorant thought and understanding that if the person wasn't really dead, in four days, a spirit would come and, or three days, a spirit would come and take them away. Jesus waited on purpose four days. To what? To nullify their, their voodooism. <laughs> to nullify it. Say, no, I'm the author of life. I'll raise him up. I'll just speak his name. And he'll come forth. But again, Paul in that text, and this is really kind of where you have to have a, a really good balance concerning this. Paul then tells them, hey, we understand your loved ones, the elect that you love, are dead. They're in the grave over here. They're in the tomb. And he says there that we are not supposed to sorrow. Now, brethren, again, it's not that we don't sorrow. 
many of us have had sorrows, especially some of us if we've lost our children. There's some sorrow that takes place. He's not saying at all we are not to sorrow, but we are not to sorrow like those who have no hope. That's the distinguishing mark. What is the hope that Jesus rose again from the dead? Amen. Not that we don't sorrow, because you look in our text in John chapter 11 here, look what Jesus did. Look there, if you would, at verse 33. Same text, John chapter 11. Look at verse 33. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. We all know the shortest verse in the Bible. What's the two words? Jesus wept. He's not asking us not to shed tears. He's not asking us not to have feelings and, and loving towards one another. When, oh, brethren, I can tell you, if I lost one of my children, I would sorrow. I would sorrow deeply and greatly. I would indeed shed tears. But I'm not to sorrow like the world. I'm not to sorrow like those. Our sorrow is different because we believe, don't we, brethren, what Paul is writing. We believe that Jesus died again, that he rose again from the dead. And those who are in Christ, God, the Bible says here, will bring with them. That's what we believe. Now, it's hard and it's difficult sometimes, but it's a reality that, again, we don't sorrow like they do. Are we sad? Yes. What? What doof? And I've heard them. What doof would stand up and say we shouldn't have sorrow for those whom we love, who have passed? And I've heard IFB preachers do it. They'd stand up there all being and cocky and arrogant. No, brethren, it's okay. You know who else wept? <laughs> Paul wept. Jesus wept. Peter wept. Go down the list. There was sorrow there, but not like the world. Our sorrow is different. This is what Paul is saying. They wept. There was sorrow. And again, he's not saying we shouldn't mourn the death of those whom we love. He is saying again that our sorrow is different than unbelievers. Our sorrow, and I like how one pastor put it, our sorrow is like the sadness of seeing someone off on a long trip. Right? It's different. We have hope. We believe. We trust. And what Paul is going to say here, it's like, as he said, seeing someone off on a long trip and knowing we will again see them in glory. Maybe down the road, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day. But that's the kind of sorrow Paul is saying to the brethren. Don't be like the world, like those who have no what? Hope. Our hope is Christ in us. Our hope is our spiritual position in Christ. Our hope is that. And we're going to see why that comes and plays such an important part. Look at verse 14. Let's just read that together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse number 14. This is all meant, brethren, to comfort you. <laughs> By the time we get to the end of the text, it's a beautiful, glorious way he closes the text. These are all things that are meant to comfort us, to comfort one another, to help us understand. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Paul literally here in verse 14 erases their troubled minds and ours. And again, this is so important. Because what he does, he speaks to them 
in a positional sense, in a spiritual sense as well. He said, because you believe that Jesus died and rose again, you see the doctrine? Do you see the, 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 the gospel? Jesus died and rose again. Because we believe that, we don't think like they do. We don't act like they do. We don't sorrow like they do. Because they don't believe. Because the Lord Jesus lives, Paul says, we live. We are in him spiritually. Therefore, we are inseparable from him. Where he is, we are. Do you understand that? What a glorious thing. Where he is, we are. Our citizenship's in heaven. That's what Paul said already. I mean, brethren, there's so many things. Where he is, we are spiritually, we are separated from him now, but spiritually we are where he is. And when he comes, we'll see him as he is, if we're still here. Paul says that God himself will personally, and again, this is an encouragement in verse 14, that God will himself personally bring all of the elect who have fallen asleep in Christ with Christ when he returns, God himself. He is countering the pagan culture of unbelief and death. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) He's countering the culture of pagan beliefs and death, a culture of death, a culture of unbelief. Now think about this for a moment, brethren. We can walk walk down the street. We see things etched in the buildings. You can still this day go to Rome. You can still go over to Asia, to these areas, and see the pagan influence that was there. In fact, one of them that they would walk by on a regular basis is still there. It said this, I was not, comma, I became, comma, I am not, comma, I don't care, period. Do you see the utter difference between what Paul is telling the brethren versus what the world thinks? Think of this, brethren. How many people think you just get dumped in the dirt hole and that's where it ends? That's where it stops. Oh, no, brother, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, that's why Paul says don't sorrow like they do. Because we believe, because of what Christ did, because he caused us to believe on him, that he drew us to himself, that the spirit of God regenerated us, that our eyes would look and see Christ, that we became with him one. And we believe again where he is, there we will be. What an amazing thing. What a dreary and unholy way to think. I was not, I became I am not, I care not. That's the society, brethren, that we as Christians are living in right now. Do you understand that? This is where we are at. It is indeed those who mock and denigrate the Lord's infallible second coming. We say in just a little bit, in a few minutes, we're going to be gathering around the Lord's table. We're proclaiming his death till what? Till he comes. The promise. Over and over and over again. This is the purpose. This is the reason why we're here this morning. Is to gather to hear his word. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, we don't have time to go there, but I'll give you the verse. Peter said, know this, that in the last day, who's going to come? Scoffers. Scoffers are going to come. And they're going to say what? Where is this coming that he promised? Oh, brethren, 
Don't be ignorant concerning his coming. Don't be ignorant about the order. Stay with scripture. Stay with what God said. Because brethren, there's coming a day when he will come. You may be in the grave. I might be in the grave possibly. But we will indeed as we're going to see here quickly. Man, I'm running out of time already. This beautiful order. It's the order. They were worried about those who died and were in the ground. And Paul lifts them up. He says, because of these things, I want you to hear these things. Look at verse chapter 4. Look at verses 15 and 16. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not what? Prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, one, with a voice of an archangel, two, and with the trump of God, three. And the dead in Christ shall rise, what? First. Isn't this a glorious sketch? It's, it's a glorious, holy outline of the order of things. You and I do not have to sit here for one more second and say, I wonder what the order is going to be when Christ comes. Who's going to be first? Who's first? Those who are dead in Christ. That's the order. They're going to be first. And then those of us, Paul says, again, his expectancy, his total and complete understanding of the imminent return of Christ. And he says, but we who are still alive, we're going to come second. It's a beautiful order. It's a biblical, godly order. And Paul says here, those aren't my words. They are God's words. They are Christ's words. You notice what he said? By the word of the Lord. This is how it's going to be. We look at it. and We go, yes, Lord. Okay, I understand that. Again, he's taking away their sorrow. They literally believe that because they died before he came, they were going to miss out on this. And he says, no, you're ignorant of that. Don't be ignorant of it. In fact, not only are they not going to miss out on it, they're going to be first. They are going to be the ones who come in the procession. When Jesus comes, he, they will be first as they welcome him. Think of that for a moment. First in the procession, and then we come behind that. Those, like Paul says, we who are still alive. If the Lord came today, we would be second in the procession as Jesus comes. Those believers, the elect of God who have been saved all through the generations of time, down through eternity, every dispensation, they will be first. And this is a glorious thing. Paul, again, is soothing their uncomforted minds because of what they were thinking. Don't be ignorant, brethren, concerning the second coming of Christ, the order of things. This is what Paul is doing. He's correcting their ignorance, not by his own word, but by the word of the Lord himself. Verse 16, look there. Look what it says. I want you to see this, this un unmistakable sounds, brother. These are unmistakable sounds that everyone will hear. This is an amazing thing when you consider this. You remember during the, the period of the tribulation and even sometime now, Satan has a lot of power. And what's his number one tool? What does he do? What's his number one tool that he uses? What? Deception. Deception. In fact, the Bible tells us that there's going to be a lot of lying, what? Wonders and miracles. 
He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He deceives people. Here, when we look at Paul, he's assuring them. He's affirming to them, just like when Jesus comes the second time. When he comes, this is all tied in here, but you think Satan is going to be able to come with the clouds of the air and every eye is going to see him? No way, brethren. That is something he will never be able to copy. Never. Well, you look in the Old Testament, the magicians, they copied the blood, they copied this, they copied that, and finally God said, nope, I'm God. Satan will not copy this. He's not going to copy this. There is a distinctive and unmistakable description that Paul gives us here. When those who are alive, when we look up, if we're not ignorant of this, we will recognize the tones. Yes, I want you to see the three things. I know we have to be finished up. Verse 16, well, we read it. When the Lord comes... First of all, he will come personally. <laughs> this is the beauty of it. The Bible says there that Jesus himself will come, and everyone's going to know it. He's not, hasn't taken up in a garage. Jehovah Witnesses, you know, Jesus came in 1963. He, he's, in, he's hiding in a garage. No one's going to know that. No one's going to believe it. You know why? Because every eye will see and every tongue is going to confess. Yes. When he comes. And these three unmistakable distinguishing sounds we shall hear. Look there first. There will be an unmistakable shout. Now people think that's a yelling. Well, it is a yelling, but it's much more than that. If you look that word up, it's literally a command. It is an imperative command. And what's the imperative command going to say? He is coming again. He whom you've been expectantly looking for, searching for, watching for, is here. It's a stunning thing, brethren. It's a command of an order. The bridegroom is coming for his bride. That's what's going to happen. Second of all, we see there will be an unmistakable voice of the archangel. Now, the reason I didn't delve deep down into this is because there's too much speculation and Mike's not speculating. Way too much speculation about what this is. I'm just going to tell you that there's going to be a distinguishing voice of the archangel. You know there's only one archangel mentioned in all of Holy Writ? Who is it? You guys know who it is. It's Michael. We don't know. So I'm not going to speculate. I'm just going to tell you that the believer, as he's looking and waiting and, and praying and seeking God as he comes, you will know a unmistakable voice that we will hear. And finally, brethren, the third thing... <laughs> The unmistakable trump of God, signaling to all the world that he is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at that, brethren. Think of that. The shout, the voice, the trump of God. In fact, the only other place in Scripture. Now, there's other trumpets that we see, obviously, in the Old Testament. We read about it in Amos this morning, didn't we, Howard? Amen. When the trumpet sounds, there, 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 there was many reasons that they would do it. They would do it to gather the troops together. They would do it to warn them. They would blow the trumpet and everybody would hear the noise. The only other place in all of Holy Writ that this trumpet in 1 Thessalonians is tied to another one is 1 Corinthians. Look with me, if you would, for just a moment. Look at 1 Corinthians. Again, Paul describing to the brethren this glorious event. Woo! This glorious event, brethren, 
that we're all expectantly waiting for, that we're all looking for. I pray you are this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, again, he's defining what he's already said. Not all of us are going to be dead. There's going to be some of us who are going to be alive when this happens. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. Look at in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. That's the one that's connected specifically to 1 Thessalonians. Again, dealing with his second coming. Dealing with his victory, his victorious entrance into the world again. As the believers are expectant, we're waiting for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. What a glorious thing. What an encouraging thing, brethren. You know, how can death be so encouraging? (laughs) You know what I mean? Again, because we don't sorrow like they do. Death is not an easy thing. I have done probably hundreds of funerals. Hundreds of them. Some I know. Some I did not know. The ones that I did not know, the gospel was preached. I don't know where they went. I don't know who they were. But the gospel knows who was sitting there listening. This hope that Paul talks about is indeed embedded in the work of Christ. It's embedded in the work of the Father who first sent his Son into the world through a virgin who put on flesh. He, he literally put on flesh, lived a perfect, holy, sinless, perfect life and died on the cross. But more than that, huh? Well, I shouldn't say more than that, but tied in with that is indeed his resurrection. Paul, again, is stressing to them Because Jesus lives, we live. Where Jesus is, we are. And where your loved ones who have died, if they're in Christ, they are with Christ even now. And there's coming a day when we will see them. They will be with Christ. They will rise first. Then we will come. And we will again be in that glorious reception line. The dead in Christ, Paul is saying, will not be left out. They will indeed experience their resurrection first. This is what he's saying. Now look at there as we close verse, verses 17 and 18. We'll bring this to a close. First Thessalonians. Well, look at verse 17. I really just want to just delve on that for a second. Look at verse number 17. Then we, again there's Paul, talking about himself, which are alive again. He believing in the imminent return of Christ. And remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And listen, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. What encouraging words, brethren, Paul again is saying to the brothers there. He includes himself as one who is waiting. He includes himself as one who is looking. One who is expecting at any moment the Lord Jesus to come for them. Any moment, brethren. It could happen. And he includes himself in that. In fact, he says, we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now that word caught up means this. It's an action verb that means to seize or to carry off by force. 
Now, brethren, again, I have to make this quick. The word caught up literally is used in such a glorious way in Scripture. Number one, it produces and we see in it security. Yeah, you know, like, you know, we use these, these terms, eternal security, perseverance of the saints, persevering grace. This word right here is tied right into all of that. And I want you to see this. Look at John chapter, chapter 10. Look there quickly. The same word concerning where they are at, concerning the security of their salvation if they're elect of God, concerning if God has called them and chosen them and drawn them and saved them. Listen to the security here. Again, John chapter 10. This same word is used right here twice. He says, those of us who are caught up, those of us who are alive will be caught up with him. Look at chapter 10. Look there again at verse number 28. A very familiar portion of scripture. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never what? Perish. Never. When Christ saves you, you will never perish. Not because of what you're doing or because of what you did, but because of what? What he has done. Listen. My sheep, uh, well, let's see, yeah, verse number 28. And I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's the word. To remove by force. No man can do that. There is security in Christ. When you are in there, when he saves you, and he seals you, when the Spirit of God seals you, you are forever secure. This is what Paul is telling them. If you're dead or if you're alive, when you're in Christ, you are forever secure in him. Not once shall any man pluck them by force out of my hand. See, I don't want to be unkind. <laughs> but this is, again, a misreading by Arminians of a text. Because they'll say, well, yeah, but you can jump out of God's hand. No, you can't. There is security here. Again, this is what it means. It doesn't mean you can jump out. It means that you are ever forever securely secure in Christ. Not by you, but by the Father and by the Son and by the Holy Ghost. No one can pluck you. And neither are you going to jump out. You're not going to want to jump out because your creature will have been changed anyway. You love Christ. You love the things of Christ. But look at what he says. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to, what? Pluck them out of my hand. What a glorious thing. The catching up, the by force indeed ensures us security in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. There's security there. Now listen, brother. This term is used a few other times in Scripture. You remember when Philip was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, and they're cruising along, he says, here's water, why shouldn't I be baptized? And he said, why? Well, if you believe, you can. And they went down into the water, and the Bible says that the Spirit of, Lord, of God caught him up. He showed up over here, but he caught him up. That is the force. That is grabbing him by force and moving him. This is the idea. This is what's happening here. It's a glorious thing, brother, to see the power of God at work. And, of course, Paul himself, who well, I think it was Paul, he says, I know a man in 2 Corinthians who was caught up to the third heaven. That's why, hey, you know, when you got books being written about heaven and what heaven Jesus looks like, he's, you know, 300 pounds, he sits over here, this kind of thing, it's all a bunch of fooey. God wouldn't even let Paul write what he saw. 
an inspired man, let alone somebody going up there and he's, you know, a 300 pound this and he's this, he's got this huge thing and this and that. Again, how do we know what heaven looks like? Only by what, what? The scripture says. That doesn't change. It's amazing, isn't it? Paul's plain language leaves no doubt regarding the certainty and security of God's elect in this glorious event. Now look at verse 18, and we'll close quickly here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What an amazing, as I said, way for Paul, as the Holy Ghost leads him to close this portion of Scripture, to comfort one another with these words. Christ the King will come, brethren. And his people will go to greet him and escort him as he comes. There's no question about that from our text. And their brethren who have died in the Lord will in fact be first in the welcoming procession, as we've seen, the order. You think, well, he's beating a dead horse. No, actually, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. The order of things, the security of things, the importance of things. They will rise first to meet the Lord and then we who are alive, if we are, at his coming, will then be gathered with them, listen, to forever be with who? The Lord. That's security. Paul closes, it's just, we will forever be with him. What a glorious thing, brethren. We live in a world, quite frankly, that's fleeting away. Not only is it fleeting, it's just fleeting. It's just, this is here today and gone tomorrow. Not in our text, not here, not for the true believer, not for the elect of God. It is safe, secure, forever with the Lord. Think of that, brethren. What a glorious way that Paul comforts the brothers with these words. Because of all of what I've said, we can be comforted with this, knowing, again, where our brothers are at, our brethren are at. Secure in the Lord. So, brethren, let us just do the same. Let us keep our eyes looking upward, working, occupying, preaching, teaching, training our children, doing all of those things. Because I can promise you this, brother, I do know when the Lord's going to come back. And well, honest pastor might know that. I can tell you when the last elect of God is saved, he will come. Not until then. The problem is I don't know who it is. So neither do you and so neither do we. Only the Father and the Son know. And yes, the Son knows. That was a whole other thing we preached. You remember that. Jesus didn't become uh, suddenly not God and didn't know when he was coming back. Yes, he did. <laughs> and yes, he does. That's a whole other thing. You've got to have a Jewish mindset to understand what he said there. It was always the Father's pleasure to announce when he was coming. Yeah. Jesus has left his coming up to the announcement of the Father. He just, not that he didn't know, he just isn't going to usurp his position. He didn't come from knowing what men were thinking to not knowing when he's coming. Are you serious? Come on now. What kind of a weak thing is that? No way. Let us keep our eyes to the sky, looking for, waiting for, expecting to hear a shout, a voice, and a trump of God. Amen? We are indeed secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of what we've done, or not because of what we think, not because of our ignorance, but because of who he is and what he's done.
what the Father did in sending him. Again, the Old Testament, they're looking, seeking, waiting, expecting, looking for the the Son to come. He comes and he says, hey, by the way, while I'm here, I'm going to come again, I promise you. And brethren, we are in that stage right now. We are waiting expectantly, hopefully, believingly, knowing that because God said it, it will indeed infallibly come to what? Pass. Let's pray. Father, we again are so thankful for the word of God. We're thankful for its clear and ever-present teaching to us. We're so thankful for its usefulness, its relevance. I mean, Paul wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, and it's as relevant this morning as it was then. And it's going to be as relevant tomorrow and the next day and the day after that until you choose to again send your son the second time. And Father, we thank you for that hope that we have, the Spirit of God in us, who is training us and teaching us to be ever present, ever aware, and to not be ignorant of these things. Father, help us, we pray. Help us to be faithful preachers and teachers of the word, and help us to be faithful fathers and mothers in the home, and oh, Father, we pray. May the Spirit of God grant that to us and give that to us and transform us into that. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ again. He who is right now this morning seated at your right hand in heaven. Who is indeed going to come again at your perfect time. Father, we thank you now as we get to gather around the Lord's table. We indeed, as believers, get to proclaim what he did, his death, till he comes. We thank you now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.